glad that you're here. Uh, I want to talk about when, when Pearl Harbor was attacked in December of, of 1941, there was a guy by the name of Desmond Doss, um, who was among the many young men in America who took that personal and he wanted to do something about it. Um, the only problem was, as a Seventh-day Adventist, he had sworn to never take another human being's life. So he enlisted in the military, but he entered in as a medic and he vowed to never pick up a weapon in his defense, not even a combat knife, okay? And, and yet, when he entered in, his battalion was charged with this task of, of heading to the island of Okinawa. Uh, and they, they, they scaled together this 400-foot cliff and then taking the summit from the enemy forces was, was their charge. And so his battalion launched out to do that. And those men climbed up that 400-foot cliff and then were met by the enemy on the summit. And they fought in this firefight that lasted for days. And, and until a moment came where there was this kind of massive assault that happened against U.S. troops, and then 75 men were injured almost immediately, and the rest were pushed back to the very edge of the cliff and had to retreat all the way back down to the cliff, um, going back down, leaving up on top only the enemy troops and the wounded Americans and little Desmond Doss. Um, he was a shipyard worker from Virginia. And as U.S. troops on the bottom, they were trying to regroup and they're saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to this? Suddenly from the top of the cliff, they saw an injured soldier begin to descend on a rope. And as he went to safety, they saw another one coming down and then another. And they started to put together what was happening as they heard the story from the soldiers that were coming down. Little Desmond Doss had been running alone into enemy fire, grabbing wounded men and tending to them and pulling them over to the cliff, fixing them up with a rope and lowering them down to safety. And for the next five hours, he continued to do so. Racing into, uh, alone into enemy fire, pulling a man out of jeopardy and then leading them to safety. And by the end of that night, the army estimates that Desmond Doss had saved 75 men. And as we awarded him the medal of honor, the highest honor our country can give a human being, they asked little Desmond, what was going through your mind as you continued to run into danger like that? And he said, well, I just kept on praying. Please, Lord, help me save one more. Please, Lord, help me save one more. Now, why am I telling you that? Because we love these kinds of stories and we make movies about these kinds of stories and we love the idea of a hero laying down their life to rescue us. But we also love the idea of an ordinary guy stepping into hard circumstances and doing something extraordinary, right? We love that because it gives us hope that maybe our little lives too can be shot with that bow from the Holy Spirit with arrow and with meaning and that we can have an explosion of you know, Holy Spirit power wherever we go. But why bring this up today? Because we are in the book of Acts, and we have been, if you've been with us. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, risen from the dead, as he's ascending into heaven, he looks down at his people, and this is what he says. Would you stand with us this morning, if you can, as we read our key text this morning, just to honor God's word? Let's say it together. We've been saying this one every week in this series on three. One, two, three. 
you will receive power. Let's just say that part again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. Come in all your power. Reveal yourself to us this morning through your word. In your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. You can be seated. So he says, you, you, are gonna go do this. And as he said that in Acts chapters one through seven, we saw that gospel go forth in power, in power, in the city of Jerusalem and the church was born. And we saw thousands in Judea come to know the savior among the Jewish community. But now today in chapter eight, we're gonna watch the good news of Jesus jump the ethnic back banks and begin to spread into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so God is gonna accomplish this mission through a man named Phil. And you say, you know, who's Phil? Like I know the apostle Peter and I've heard of Paul and we've heard of Luke and John, but who's Phil? Oh, come, come on, you remember Phil. He was introduced in Acts chapter six and he oversaw bread distribution to the widows in Jerusalem. Actually, he, he, he wasn't in charge of bread distribution. Technically, Stephen oversaw the bread distribution, but Philip was the assistant to the manager of bread distribution in Jerusalem. And he would have been promoted to the head job of bread distribution, but Stephen got killed. We've, we heard that story last week. And when Stephen was killed, everyone had to flee. And so Philip never really got the promotion that he was looking for. But as we enter this passage, 50% of that great commission from King Jesus in Acts uh, chapter one, verse eight is about to be accomplished. And it's gonna happen through the assistant of the manager of bread distribution, <laughs> all right? And, and it's going to happen through this guy named Phil. The guy who drives the bread truck is about to change the world, okay? And, and I think that that's, this kind of story is meant to encourage us and to encourage you that everyday people can have eternal impact. It doesn't matter this morning if you're the bus driver. It doesn't matter if you're you know, the barista working at the coffee place. It doesn't matter. God wants to accomplish the extraordinary through ordinary people like you. And like me, and God, God wants to use you to spread his fame to the world. Now, I know that sounds exciting, but if we're honest, it can also sound a little bit stressful, right? Because the truth is, it's easy to get excited in rooms like this, you know, about the professionals, you know, taking Jesus' name to the world. You know, we're going to take Jesus' name to the nation, so go get him, Pastor Lyle. Woo! Right? Yeah. So, yes, you are a Christian, but when someone stands up and says, and you are going to make his name great at your office and at your school and at your place, you, you say, no, I don't think so because that would be awkward, right? They're gonna laugh at me, they'll reject me. It, it, it'll cost me socially. It might cost me professionally and financially. Um, I don't wanna do that. That scares me to think about spreading the fame of Jesus in my zone. And, and let me just say, at the outset, I completely resonate with that and I get it. I mean, um, as an as a introvert, I used to have to pray for courage, you know, to tell the, the waiter something was wrong with my food order, right? <laughs> and you would say, but that's the, the waiter's job. They, they expect that from you. And I'd say, yeah, I know, but I don't want to complicate the relationship, right? <laughs> and so you can imagine 
how stressed I was when I was a young college student and part of this evangelistic training that would go out, they would go door to door. And, you know, I would just rather die than do that, right? And, and so that was not easy for me. And so I, I get the fear. I do. But none of that fear changes these facts. Number one, that deep inside, every single one of us, we yearn to have a life that really makes a difference. We do. The, the message of Jesus is the most important message on the planet. And God decided that he's going to do his eternal work through everyday people. So hear me, he wants to use you. You are plan A. He wants to use you. And so we've got to figure out if we have the best of all messages, how do we take on the work of making that message known? And Phil's going to help us do it this morning, all right? So, but before we get into the practice of how to pull it off, I want to take some time this morning and look at his perspective. Because here's the reality. I could give us technique about how to tell people about Jesus, but if you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. And so we've got to get the perspective first, and then we'll look at the practice, okay? Now, I know that some of you in the room are thinking, you know, Sean, you're talking about, you know, making Jesus' name famous, um, telling people about Jesus, and, and maybe you're not, you know, Jesus' person. Like, I'm just here because my neighbor keeps inviting me, so what's the deal? So let me just encourage you, if, if that's you this morning, to just come and sit with us, because as you gather with us over time, you'll see what burns in your hearts, and if anything, you'll just get the answer for why your neighbor keeps inviting you to be here, right? But as we dive into Acts chapter eight, we're going to see Philip, he's going to go to Samaria and he's going to preach the gospel and he's going to have incredible success. But before that, his perspective is found in verse four. He's part of a mass of people who launch out from Jerusalem in verse four. And it says, although the believers were scattered by persecution, they preached the wonderful news of the word of God. Now, the question is, who were those believers and why were they scattered? And as you look up in context, you realize what's happening here is the direct result of what we talked about last week, the murder of Stephen, because Stephen's death was the culmination of some animosity that had been brewing in Jerusalem between the Jewish religious leaders and this new movement of Jesus. And so they told Peter, you know, stop preaching the message. They, they warned him. And then as they continued to preach the message of Jesus, they had some of them beaten and put in prison. And then as they continued to do it, Stephen stepped forward and he gave the sermon that said, you know, your forefathers had always been resisting the spirit of God. And they took that personally and they killed him. And yet as they saw Stephen willingly and peacefully take his death, they realized there's really only one way to stop people like that, and that's extermination. And so the Pharisee, Saul, he begins to ravage the church. And the text says, you know, going from door to door, he's grabbing men and women, dragging them out, putting them in prison and trying to kill some of them. And so those who are scattered with the believers in Jerusalem, they're doing what you expect someone to do in persecution. They are running for their lives. They're scattering, they're fleeing. But then they do something that we don't expect. It says, now those who were scattered, they preached the wonderful news of the word of God wherever they went. And you say, you know, you look at that, you say, isn't that what got Stephen killed? You know, why, why would you do the thing that's getting people murdered? Shouldn't it say, as we're reading the scripture here, and they scattered, they cut their hair really short, they dyed it, blended it, and disappeared among the people. That's what it should say, right? Why would they start doing the thing that resulted in people dying? Well, here's the perspective that they had. And incidentally, 
It's the perspective that's gonna get the message of Jesus into Africa and Asia and Europe in their lifetime. Their perspective is they saw themselves as an ambassador of the king. I exist to announce the king's message. And you see it in the verbs in verse four. It says that they went about preaching the word. That's evangelizo in the original language. And that means I am declaring the good news of the arrival of a king. You see it in the very next verse where it says, Philip traveled to a Samaritan city and preached to them the wonderful news of the anointed one. The word proclaim there is the word cariso. And it's what a herald did. A herald back in those days was one of the most prized employees of the king and he would ride next to him on his horse because the herald was the official ambassador and the announcer for the king. So that as the king comes riding into the city, I ride ahead of him and I announce to the people, your king is here. And so it's the king, if the king had any message to send to other nations, to enemy troops, to a different city, I ride out in the authority of the king with his announcement, and I speak with the authority and the announcement of the king. That was a herald. And that's how the early church saw themselves. I'm riding out in the authority and the power of my king. So yeah, it would have made sense to hide out and lie low, but they said, I have been rescued by the king and I'm his ambassador and I'm his announcer. And so I go into every context with his authority and with his announcement, that's who I am. That's who I am. And when you see yourself that way, my identity is the ambassador of the king that instantly gives you this confidence because you would come with the authority of the king too. And it gives you particular confidence if you know that your king runs the universe, right? And so Paul said in Romans, we know that God works all things for the good of those that are called according to his purposes. And so they knew if I'm called according to his purpose, then I'm working for him and he's working things out for me and he runs everything to accomplish his purpose. So everything's gonna be good. You see in this passage that it says they scattered from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And there's only one other verse in Acts where those places are mentioned in Acts. Chapter one, verse eight, where Jesus said, you're gonna go from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. And so they saw even our pain is for his purpose. He even takes our persecution and he works it out for his proclamation. And, and you know, you, you see it in China as missionaries who were cast out decades ago, they died, but now it's growing. The gospel message is growing. You see it even today in Iran, persecution has become the seedbed for the growing church there. And we see it in our own lives. Some of, listen, some of your most significant, eternal, powerful conversations have probably happened near a hospital bed. Because God will rescue you from what normally happens where everyday conversation just kind of tends towards the trivial, right? And he will use some pain sometimes to bring us about to what really matters. And so these people have a confidence going wherever they may go because they go, I work for the king and the king runs this place. So I come with the confidence that I belong to him. And they came with clarity too. They said, I'm his ambassador, and an ambassador announces the message of the king. So that's what you're here to do. That's what we're here to do. I exist to carry his name. And so it made it easy. Whatever room I walk in, whatever place that I'm gonna go to, I already know why I'm there. 
I know why I'm there. And let me tell you something, as a guy who's worked with young people for a couple decades of my life, you'll get that question, right? You know, I, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna do uh, as far as a, a job, a, like a, a career. I don't know um, why I'm here this summer. I don't know where I'm supposed to go when I graduate. I don't know who the guy is gonna be that I'm gonna marry or the girl. I don't know why I'm even here. <laughs> well, these guys were like, I know why I'm here. You can trust me in Samaria, God. And Phil doesn't go, what am I doing here? What, what jobs are here in Samaria? He goes, I know I'm in Samaria to proclaim the message of Jesus because that's my job everywhere. <laughs> why else would I be here? And so I, I tell you the first time that I grabbed that level of clarity for myself was in college. I went to a Christian college, Christ Foundations Institute in Dallas, Texas, and I worked as a security guard downtown. And my First assignment there was to sit in one of those little guard shacks um, at the entrance to a parking garage. You know what I'm talking about? Um, one of those that you can just barely fit the person in, right? That was me. I was there until 1.30 a.m. Um, at almost every night of the week. And after a certain hour, it got pretty quiet, right? Even on the, the streets of downtown Dallas. So I got in the habit of pulling out my Bible and I had this little time with God right in the middle, uh, towards the end of my shift. And so my supervisor was cool with it, you know, as long as I kept alert and, you know, paid attention to what was going on around me. And I, I remember as I did that, amid the kind of the mundane of the, the middle of the night security shift, I started touching down with the eternal words of God and thinking about God and praying. And then I realized that my evening started to change. And the weirdest thing happened. It was like God had given me almost like a different set of eyes. And that, that block that I was occupying started to change. And it started to look totally different in my mind's eye. And I saw the street people and the intoxicated people. And there were several that walked by, uh, uh, as they always did. And I got to, to witness lots of pretty crazy things on that street. Um, uh, that street in downtown Dallas. I got to see, I've got lots of stories to tell if you, if you ever have some time, just ask me sometime. But God started opening my eyes to their stories. And I started to see them through God's eyes instead of my eyes, probably for the first time. And I thought, maybe God, you have something different for me than just sitting in this guard shack until 1.30 a.m. in the morning all by myself. And this is not like me at all. I'm a, I'm a hardcore introvert at heart but I found myself walking over to people on the street, to, to a guy on the street, say, hey, can I sit with you? And then I'd just ask a question, how are you doing, man? And, and it turns out, you know, the guy was having a really hard day in the midst of a really hard life. And suddenly the end of my work shift, which usually felt pointless, was touching eternity. Because I got the clarity of, I'm a messenger here, to sit with this guy. I'm a messenger. There's a wonderful clarity that comes when you know I belong to my king and my job is to announce his message. So whatever room you walk into, whatever street you walk down, it's, it, whether it be a boardroom, a, a classroom, an emergency room, you know why you're there. You know why you're there. The how we can figure out later. We can, just, we can let Holy Spirit help us with that. But the why is you're an ambassador for the king. And not only do we walk in with that clarity about ourselves, but we also walk in with compassion for those people because we know I exist to pronounce the message of the king for his people and for their good. And so there's a compassion 
It's the next thing on your notes that comes with this persecution. And you see it in Phil. Verse five sounds normal to us. Philip traveled to a Samaritan city and he preached to them the wonderful news of the anointed one. But you've got to realize that that was a, this is a pretty massive statement. That was bold. That, that Philip would go to Samaria and tell them about Christ because Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Uh, and their animosity, really, it started a thousand years back. And, and it started when they were part of the tribe that broke away and they went north and they abandoned the city of Jerusalem. And then when they were overpowered by the Assyrians, they intermingled and they intermarried among the enemies. And so the Jews hated that. They hated it. And when the Jewish people were marched away in exile, when they returned, they rebuilt the temple of God and they told the Samaritans, you are not invited. And so the Samaritans, they built a rival temple. So when the Jews, you know, thought of the Samaritans, they said, they're heretics, they're half-breeds. That was what they thought. And they didn't like them. And that's why this was so crazy. So in John chapter four, it's the same story. When Jesus walked into Samaria and sat down by that well and asked that Samaritan woman for a drink of water, did you notice in that text that she never answers that question? <laughs> he says, can I get a drink of water? And she never talks about the water. We don't know if he ever got his drink. We, we don't know if later he had to come around, you know, at the conversation and say, no, seriously, I'm really thirsty. Can I get some water? <laughs> you know, the implication, here's why. I think the implication of him basically coming to this, this, this condescending to speak to her were so loud. And so he says, can I get a drink of water? And she says, what are you doing? Why are you even talking to me? Nobody crosses this boundary. But Jesus does. Because he's not just the king of one little tribe. He's the king of the nations. And so he breaks through the barriers and so do his ambassadors, by the way. And so when Phil sees the Samaritans, he sees people who are worthy of the grace of Jesus Christ. So he comes with a compassion to tell them about a king who can set them free. And that's what we do, right? So when we have that perspective that I work for the king, we come in that confidence and we come in with that clarity about ourselves and a compassion for people. And we tell them the best of all messages about Jesus. Are you willing to do that? And I remember for me, that compassion piece really hit me when I was a, a young youth pastor. There was a guy in our, in our high school that was a massive mountain of a human being. And he wore this alternative, kind of a I don't, strange mix between grunge and goth clothes. And he didn't have many friends. And I mean, he just seemed angry and intimidating, you know, that guy in, in high school. And so I did what everybody else did pretty much, avoid him and, and probably even talk bad about him sometimes. And so th this was a time, uh, you know, uh, th I'm telling the story that I was, I started doing, I was doing concerts with my buddies. And one time we, we even set up a trailer on the main drag of the city and it was supposed to be this an evangelistic thing. And by that time I was, I was a, a young adult and Deanna and I had just been hired in our first youth ministry positions uh, in Pierce, South Dakota as youth pastors at my home church. And I did what, <laughs> I did what most believers do. I, I invited Christian friends and the, the Christian kids in our youth group and told them to invite um, their friends who didn't know Jesus. You know, come and listen to some Christian music and have a good old Christian time, right? And, and, and so you can imagine how weird it was for me when we were done with the event and we were tearing down the equipment and there this guy was. And he looked 
down at me because he, that's how high, tall he was. He looked down at me and he said, hey, Sean. And I'm, I, was, I, was kind of, I was kind of taken aback. I was like, how did you get, a, how did you get here? Did you get lost, man? Is, like, is there like a Slayer concert across the street and you actually ended up here or something? You know, <laughs> like what's happening here? And I remember he said, Stuart invited me. And, and he, he was one of the older kids who was in our youth group. And he said, you know, man, we've been sitting here and he's been telling me about Jesus and what he's all about. And he said, I didn't know anything like this even existed. And then he looked at me and he said, I'm just so glad that I'm here. And God broke my young youth pastor heart that night that my little circle of who Jesus moves among was so small. God has a compassion for all and we're meant to as well, right? And so Phil goes and he preaches and he meets with incredible success. Verse six, it says, the crowds were eager to receive Philip's message and were persuaded by the many miracles and wonders that he performed. Many demon-possessed people were set free and delivered as evil spirits came out of them with loud screams and shrieks. And many who were lame and paralyzed were also healed. This resulted in an uncontainable joy filling the city. So Philip came with confidence and clarity and compassion and his words and his deeds changed the culture and it set people free and brought joy to the city. And it was such a massive revival that Peter and John came down from Jerusalem to see this because so far God had, had in their movement, God had only been moving in Jerusalem. And so they came down and said, oh my Lord, this is happening and it's happening outside of Jerusalem. And as they prayed for the people, Holy Spirit moved in power and he did it to show them there's not just the Jerusalem Christians over there and the Samaritans over here. We are all one body in Jesus Christ and he has the power to make former enemies into friends. And this one movement by the spirit of God, Jerusalem and Samaria is knit together. And there's a powerful movement that doesn't just change Samaria, it inspires the, the apostles. Massive success by Phil that we see here. And then there's a moment where he must face off with a magician, you know, like you do sometimes. <laughs> but I, I think there's a, a natural question that you may be asking at this time. And you're like, okay, I get that perspective. And I, I want to come into every room I walk into and say, you know, I'm, I'm the person of Jesus in this office or, or at my school and I want to speak his name. But then you've got to talk to me about practice is I don't know how to do it. And I'm not just gonna come to work on Monday and jump on my desk and yell, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Because <laughs> that's not gonna go over so well. <laughs> so I need some strategy. And so as we move on, we're gonna get some practical help from Phil. And we're gonna see at the end of chapter eight, the text narrows its scope to a one-on-one -on -one conversation between Phil, the bread delivery guy and an Ethiopian man. And as we see it, the first practical point that we have to ask ourselves is, am I willing to be used by God? Am I willing to even entertain the possibility that God wants to use me in my context? Phil has a moment here in verse 26 where an angel of the Lord said to him, now go south from Jerusalem on the desert road to Gaza. It's an angel. The Lord told him to go. What does that even look like, right? We don't know. But the point is that God's directing him 
And the message is, go and leave what you're doing. And then he says, head south towards the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Samaritan, Samaria is in the north. So he had to pass through Jerusalem, 60 miles to get down to this road on its way to Gaza. And then the text clarifies this for us. This is a desert place, right? There's nothing out there. Gaza has been destroyed in like 97 BC. So God tells Philip, leave all your friends, leave your community. I want you to journey down to the middle of nowhere, okay? It's like God is calling him to Hillsview, South Dakota, population three, right? Or something like that. And you're like, really God, why? Why am I going here? But that's not how Phil responds, is it? Look in the, the very next verse, it says, he immediately left on his assignment. He immediately left. There's no pushback. There's no God. I don't think I'm the guy. God, they, they know me here in Samaria. You know, this is my crew. Like when I walk in, people know me. They're like, what's up, Phil? And I'm like, I got you, you know? And, and, and I kind of like that. This is my spot. So can someone else have the Gaza spot? Because this is my spot. No, you, you don't see that from Philip. Philip has a sense of readiness in whatever room I enter into, I'm willing to be used by God. And my question for you is, are you? Has it crossed your mind that in some of the rooms that you're gonna walk into this week that you might be the ambassador for the king in that moment? I tell, for, for me, I tell you for me, the, the, the first, this first landed on me when I was working back at the, you know, as a security again um, uh, in Dallas. Deanna and I were both doing it at that time and, and we worked our way up the ranks, did the training and we landed ourselves in supervisor positions. And that didn't make us popular with a lot of the employees because many of them were uh, retired military and, you know, taking orders from a tall, skinny Bible college student wasn't too appealing to them. Um, regardless, I, I, I loved my job and, and the place that I worked but it was somewhat of a, of a grueling schedule. I wrote myself into three back-to-back -back shifts, uh, two 16s and an eight-hour shift that I worked on the weekend. I started Friday night and I was done by Monday morning. And I did that so I could be free uh, for my studies and my college work the rest of the week. But as a result, I would drive up to the parking lot at night. I usually work the graveyard shift. So I'd, I'd park the car and I'd have this moment, you know, before I walked in. And, and uh, I, I took that moment to pray. I, I learned to make this a habit. Many times <laughs> I was, you know, not functioning on, on very much sleep as college students tend to do, right? And I would just say, God, help me get through this. <laughs> that was my prayer a lot of the times. And then I'd go do it. And, and that was kind of the, my rhythm until about midway through my second semester, I realized, you know, I've been going to Bible study after Bible study and, and, and class training me for ministry and, and doing all of that. And, and does, does all of that in any way, does it connect to my context here? Because I'm spending, you know, 40 hours of my week here. And I remember I thought maybe it should. And so I prayed and I'm not making this up. My prayer grew to eventually God helped me get through this. And you know, if you want to use me or whatever, that's fine too. <laughs> and so I walk into my shift and I remember the first time, you know, thinking to myself, I needed to make that shift and pray that way. And I carried, I would carry in my boom box to put under the, cause that was still a thing. And to put it under the security desk where I worked and I would play my tunes. And, and, I, and I, I had hardly been there for all of two minutes. And this guy from one of the other buildings, he walks up to my counter and he goes, hey, you believe in God, right? <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, well, tell me about him. 
I, I happened to be reading that night. I was, it was a textbook about this thick about the character of God <laughs> for one of my classes. And I started telling him what I believed about God and what I was learning from the book. And he, and he goes, I, I, I kid you not. He says, hang on a second. And he leaves and goes and grabs the guy that was now working in that security guard shack in the garage where I was first working when I first started there. He goes and gets him and they sit down while I'm still getting ready and preparing for my shift. And he says, start over again. Tell us about God. And I'm like, this can't be real. And, and as I'm talking, I found out what, what had happened is they had watched this show on the Discover Channel about how the world was created by aliens or something like that. And they'd just been talking about it and it freaked them out. <laughs> and so they were like, we've got to talk to somebody. And they just thought, well, Sean, he goes to Bible. He, he knows something about God. And, and I sat in that moment and, and, and the, it never had crossed my mind that God may want to use me right there on the graveyard shift. And, and that's the thing. You have no idea what God has in store for you if you just walk in that mindset that I'm an ambassador and I carry the message of the king. And you pray for those opportunities and for those doors to open up. And you, as, as, as you walk down the road, are you willing to pray? And I started after that experience to pray more because initiating conversations about Jesus is always awkward for me. Initiating conversations at all is awkward for some of us, right? It doesn't come naturally for some of us. And there were other guys that are, you know, students that were with me at the college, they were on these evangelism teams and they were natural extroverts. And they would just go up to a stranger at a bus stop, you know, and they'd say, hey, I was reading this Bible verse and this applies to you. And the person's life would be changed, you know? And, and you know, I I would go up to somebody and be like, hey, 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 right? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, no, 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 uh, no. You know, it's fine. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're good. And it, it was never not weird. And so I realized I can't do it in my own strength because it's not my strength. So I started to pray. Lord, will you please create opportunities, opportunities for me to talk about you because I can't create them. Can you tell me about Jesus? <laughs> Just walked right up to my desk. Let me, go get my, let, let me go get the other guy. Can you tell us about Jesus? That's a bold prayer to pray. God loves to answer that kind of prayer. I, I heard a great story from another pastor this week. There was, there was a Starbucks that he would frequent and he didn't know either how to walk in and talk about Jesus at Starbucks. So, you know, he didn't, but he would sit down and he would, he would, he would, he started doing this. He started praying in a similar fashion. Lord, would you create opportunities for me to talk about you right, even right here. And so one day he was sitting there reading his Bible as he tended to do. And the barista, the barista got off on a break and walked over to his table and just sat down. And she said, you're always in here reading the Bible. I need you to pray for my son. The pastor said, what's going on? And she said, he's on drugs again and he's scared. And she starts telling him about her life. So the pastor starts sharing with her what he was reading about in the text that day. And they held hands and they prayed together. The next time the pastor showed up at Starbucks, he walked in, he was back there working. And she was like, hey, hey, you guys need to meet this guy. He's praying for my son. You need to pray. You need to have him pray for you. <laughs> and she introduced the pastor to the whole staff. And they started coming to his church. <laughs> and he's like, what is the deal? And the deal is you have no idea how God may want to use you in your context. Wherever you go, 
So I'm just asking the question, are you willing to begin to tell him, Lord, would you create the opportunities because I wanna step into them? So Phil left immediately on his assignment. And then the text says, along the way, he encountered an Ethiopian who believed in the God of the Jew, who was the minister of finance for Candace, queen of Ethiopia. He was on his way home from worshiping God in Jerusalem. And as he rode along in his chariot, he was reading from the scroll of Isaiah. I love this because various translations will say there was an Ethiopian, he met an Ethiopian, but the word in the Greek is I do, I-D-O-U. And it literally means that Philip walks out into the desert road, like, you know, okay, I'm here. And then behold, an Ethiopian. (laughs) All right, so who just happens to be the CFO of Ethiopia? How, How about that, right? So he goes out to this desert place, this nowhere place, and we begin to learn about this guy. It says he's an Ethiopian. This is modern day Sudan. But in the ancient texts, they would say, they would call this place the ends of the earth. That's what they would call it. So you're about to watch the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And this man was not only an Ethiopian, but he was also a eunuch. Now, I don't have time to get into what a eunuch is, so I think Pastor Derek is gonna share about that next week, so you can ask him. Uh, (laughs) But basically, it, it means that you're not having kids, and it also means that when you came into worship in Jerusalem, you weren't allowed past a certain point because you're not right. And so you weren't allowed close to God. And so he's coming back from Jerusalem. It says that he happened to be a financial minister of finance for Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Candace was, was not her name, it's her title. The Ethiopian king was thought to be the descendant of the son. And so he was too holy to do the regular work. So the queen, Candace, she ran the country and this guy handled all the money, okay? So he's the CFO of all of Ethiopia. One of the most important Africans just came rolling by Phil. But Phil doesn't know any of this. All he knows is I'm on a desert road by myself in the middle of the nowhere and and a chariot goes by because God doesn't give us a lot of details a lot of times up front, right? He says, hey man, I just wanted to let you know you're about to influence the entire continent, buckle up. It's gonna be amazing. No, he didn't tell Phil that. But what, what he does say in verse 29 is the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go and walk alongside the chariot. <laughs> and this is our next practical point. Ethan, you're gonna like this one. Embrace the awkward. <laughs> Embrace the awkward because talking about spiritual things is awkward, right? My, my, my girls will recognize this too as the, as the catchphrase for the youth ministry that I led in Bayfield. It was made popular by our senior high youth pastor at the time, a guy that I love very much. And we served in ministry very closely together uh, for a season. And, and he's a living, breathing miracle of God that walks with a limp after a, a, a dumb stunt that he did with a snowmobile and an evergreen tree. I'll let you imagine um, what happened. But he would, he would always kind of make light of the, you know, the funny way that he walked with his limp, thus embrace the awkward. But he also embraced it as a spiritual concept. I mean, do, do you think this was awkward for Phil? Go and walk alongside the chariot. So he's walking along. Hey, what's up? <laughs> he's just walking alongside the chariot. Okay, 
what do I do? He, he was, he, he's walking along. It's weird. It's, that's a strange thing to do. And every time you step into a spiritual conversation with someone, it will feel awkward. Why? Because people don't normally talk about deep things. Everyday life, again, it tends towards, it trends towards the tr- trivial. It's, it just does. And yet God wants his people to speak about the deepest things for their good. And we have to know that it's going to be awkward sometimes. And so I remember for me, even when God tees it up for me, it can be hard. I was sitting on a plane, which, you know, normally I get in my zone for yourself. Some of you, some of us, I should say, will even pray, Lord, let the seat be empty next to me, please. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus, right? This lady sits next to me. Hey, where are you going? Where are you from? I tell her. And then I said, where are you going? And she said, I'm on my way to my father's funeral. And honestly, I'm torn up. I'm torn up about it. And I sat there and was like, so sorry for your loss. And I I just kind of put my headphones on. And it wasn't until like midway through the flight (laughs) that I'm like, wait a second. She just lost her dad. And she just happens to be sitting by a pastor, should I say something? (laughs) And even in that obvious moment, I'm like, I don't know, this is gonna be weird. And it was hard for me to go, but I did it. You know what? Hey, I'm, I'm a pastor. I don't know if you're okay with this, but I would like to pray with you, you know? And you know what? She loved it. She saw it as a sign that God saw her. Because here's the reality, people want to talk about spiritual things. They do, but it's awkward getting to it. But if we are the ambassadors of God and we know that we are the ambassador of God, we've got to embrace the awkward to wade through it sometimes. So I'll I'll tell you my full prayer that I pray now. It's morphed into this, Lord, you create the opportunities and then give me the courage to enter into them. That's what I pray. And I challenge you to do that. So when this kid who is part of a youth group where I volunteer in Duluth, Minnesota, announced that he was terminally ill and that he was nearing what would be the end of his life, I, I really didn't know where he was spiritually. Um, I was just a volunteer on this, on this particular youth ministry and his language was edgy, nice way to put it. Um, and it seemed obvious that he was there to just, you know, kind of hang out with one girl and, you know, who is also kind of a fringe kid. And I thought to myself, you know, I need to go talk to him. I mean, this, he's in a really difficult place in his life. I need to go talk to him. And the minute I thought that I was like, no, no, he's never been open to any spiritual conversation. The whole time he's been here, he doesn't want to talk about spiritual things. And frankly, I don't think he likes me very much. So all these thoughts are going in my head and there's gonna be students all around. It's gonna be distracting. This would be a huge waste of time, but he just kept, the Holy Spirit kept on bringing him up in my mind. And I kept on thinking, you know, if he dies, I'm gonna wish I had this conversation. So I started praying on the drive to youth group that next week. And the whole time I was thinking, oh, this is, don't do it, Sean. This is gonna, this is not gonna end well. I just felt like I was gonna be like Phil running alongside the chariot, like, hey man, what's up? And I was like, this is dumb. Maybe I'm just having a a savior complex here. Why am I doing this? This is not going to work. You know, all the things we tell ourselves. And I remember as I walked into the youth room that night and I turned the corner, he was sitting in the room all by himself. The youth pastors had just stepped out to go and run some copies. And as I walked up to him, I could see some tears streaming down his eyes. I had never seen any kind of emotion like that out of him before. And I could see that he was crying. And I asked him what was up and he said that he was scared. 
And he wanted to know more about this whole God thing. And he wondered if, I, if there was a God that would heal him. And you know, you know me, my eyes just immediately started watering up with him. And I told him that no matter what happens, my God is a God who loves you and he will be with you and he's a God of rescue and I would love to talk with you about him tonight. And as the youth group students and the youth pastors and the leaders started coming into that room, they all started to gather around him too, which is the beautiful thing about community and they loved him. And my Lord Jesus Christ came into that moment that I didn't have the courage for and forgave him and changed his life. And so as we were having the conversation that night, I kept on asking the question, you know, what do you think about that as we were talking? And he'd say, well, it sounds pretty good. And, and then I would press in and say, yeah, but what do you think about that? Where are you with God as you think about this illness? And I asked the question that I've asked so many people when they tell me about tragedies in their life. I say, where's God in that for you? Where is he right now? And so I embrace the awkwardness, right? And that's not easy. And I'll give you just another little tip here. You lead with a question. That's what Philip did right here. You see it in verse 30. So Philip ran to catch up. And as he drew closer, he overheard the man reading from the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet. And Philip asked him, sir, do you understand what you're reading? He leads with the question. Notice he doesn't lead with the sermon. He didn't come running up going, man, it's like Africa hot down here. You know what else is hot? Hellfire. You know? No, he didn't do that. And you shouldn't either. Um, just in case you're wondering. And yeah, it may be a little awkward, but it doesn't have to be needlessly awkward, right? That you can just enter in. And one natural thing to do is to lead with a question. And you know what else I pray? Lord, help me to be genuinely interested in this person because I know you are. And you start talking. There's hardship and you say, where's God in that for you? And I promise you, you'll get to some deep places pretty fast. Because what I found is as you're genuinely interested in a human being's life, it will always lead to their deep needs that are meant to be met in Jesus. Always, always, always. And so out of compassion for people, lead with a question and pray, Lord, let me be genuinely interested in them and God, will you create the opportunity and then give me the courage to take it? That's how you pray. And so Philip began to speak to this man. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I possibly make sense of this without somebody explaining it to me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the carriage. And I love that. Philip has this genuine interest and his kindness purchased him the right to be a guide in this conversation. How can we speak the truth? When people feel our love, that's how. And the fascinating thing is that this guy happens to be reading Isaiah and he happens to be around the 50s in the chapters because Isaiah 50, chapter 56 is when God speaks to the foreigner and he says, there will come a day when I do a new work and even the foreigner will be welcome in my house. And then the next verse, it says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. He's, he's saying, I'm giving you a name that's better than son or daughter. You will be in my kingdom. But he's hung up in chapter 52 here. And it says that before that day of blessing, 
An innocent man has to suffer and die and he takes an unjust sacrifice with the calm repose of a lamb that's going to the slaughter. And he reads this passage in Isaiah and it reads, he was led away to the slaughter like a lamb to be offered. He was like a lamb that is silent before those who sheared him. He never even opened his mouth. In his lowliness, justice was stripped away from him and who could fully express his struggles for his life was taken from the earth. And so the Ethiopian asks Philip, please, can you tell me who the prophet is speaking of? Is it himself or another man? They get real enough to be honest. You see that? And then I love verse 35. Philip started with this passage. I'm gonna start with you right where you are. And he shared with him the wonderful message of Jesus. That's your next point. You've got to speak. <laughs> You've got to speak it. I've talked to so many people that will say, I leave that up to somebody else. I just try to, you know, lead a, a good example. I'm, I'm more of a relational evangelism guy. And I'm all about relationship when it comes to loving people and, 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 and leaning into a relationship with God for them. So have the relationship, but then also have the evangelism. Because as you care about people, deep needs are gonna get uncovered. And what they need is a people willing to speak his name. The one who came for us and he died for us uh, and then rose for us, they need to know his name. Amen. Is Bob still here? Yeah, can you come up? Sir, please, thank you. And so I pray, Lord, will you create the opportunities and give me the courage. And then when the opportunity comes, tell them the answer. His name is Jesus, right? And it's not a list of rules. It's not the things that you're supposed to do to, to make God like you more or hate you less. It's about the son of God who came for us and he lived among us and it was gentle with us and he spoke the truth to us and he lived the perfect life that we could not. And he who knew no sin became sin for us and he took my sin and yours and my shame and yours and my guilt and yours and it landed on him at the cross. And it buried him in the grave, but he didn't stay there, he rose. And now God is offering all of us to come to him and to let our sin fall into the dirt and to take up what he purchased for his children, the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Speak his name, that's what we're meant to do. It might be a little scary, but it just might be the most powerful thing that we do. Because by the time Phil's done, it tells us that the Ethiopian says, stop the chariot, I wanna get baptized. <laughs> I wanna have a relationship with that kind of a God. There are so many people who spread their ideas with bombs and terror and spread their message with fear and with hate. What if the people of Jesus said, we're gonna stand up with your message of love and redemption? We have a God who went running into the war for us, not at the risk of his life, but for the cost of it. Because when people meet a God like that, the Ethiopian says, I want to know that God. And it said that when he rose out of the water, that he returned to Ethiopia full of great joy.
is joy. We get to be culture shapers. We get to be the ambassadors of Jesus to the areas that he sent you that I may never traffic in. Would you be willing to take up that God-given role of a hope bringer, a life bringer, a joy bringer? Because you carry the name and the message of Jesus. It might be the best thing that you ever do. Lord Jesus, help us to be carriers of your name. God, you've given us the incredible privilege of partnering with your plan to go to the ends of the earth. But God, start right here. Use us right here. God, we pray, open up the opportunities, Lord. Give us the courage. Give us the boldness. Lord, give us a genuine passion and an interest in the lives of those people that you've put around us. And God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. We wanna carry your name. As we walk out those doors this morning, we wanna carry your name. Wherever we're going this afternoon, when we go to the restaurant, we wanna carry your name. Lord, help us to say it out loud. Lord, help us to create, again, create those opportunities, Lord, where we don't even see it, that they would come to us and say, would you tell us about Jesus? Lord, open the doors that only you can open. Do what only you can do. God, we want to be used by you to go into all the world, starting with our hometown, starting with Jerusalem and going out to Samaria and Judea, all to the ends of the earth. God, use us to carry your name. If you're here this morning, you've yet to say yes to Jesus, I wanna give you an opportunity with nobody looking around. This is a private moment. Just my eyes uh, up right now. I wanna give you the opportunity to say yes to a, a savior that has given his life for you. If that's you this morning, been hearing about the story of rescue, the story of a God that um, brings joy, that brings life change. I want to give you that opportunity. So with nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand this morning, either a re-surrender this morning to your purpose and plans. Thank you, Jesus. I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you, God. Or for the first time, say, I want to give my heart and my life to Jesus. Let's pray this together, everybody this morning. Father God, I give you my life, all that I am, your purpose and for your glory. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for dying for me. Lord, I lay down my life. I surrender it to you, everything. Be the Lord of my life and take me to the places that you've prepared, where you've opened doors to carry your name. Thank you for rescue. Thank you for healing this morning. All that you've done for me, let me live my life for you. In your name we pray, amen.